<clears throat> okay, so today we are we are starting to conclude our apologetics series. We have so far had 16 sessions proving God's existence. And this is basically the second half of apologetics. The first part necessary is proving God's existence. And we'll see, you know, how other people have different ideas as to the real starting point. But then the the larger another large task of apologetics is also proving the authenticity of the scripture, the ultimate authority of the Bible and no other word of God who claim that claims to be a word of God, okay? So, 98 pretty much 99% of apologetics has to do with proving God's existence and also proving the the absolute authority of the Bible, okay? And that's what we're going to start doing. Uh, we'll probably have two more weeks after after today. And basically, I have instead of because I don't know what pictures to put or whatever. So basically, I just kind of put my notes on here so we can just kind of go along with my notes. So that's basically what we're doing. So many people believe that we should presuppose the Bible's authority. So so basically, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. And so as Christians, we all know that the Bible claims to be the Word of God. And therefore, that is, is if you can prove that the, the, the Bible is the Word of God, then proving God's existence is much easier. And, and especially Christ's deity is much easier because that's found in the Bible, right? But this, the authenticity, again, the authenticity is vital, like we're, we're saying, but it's not the starting point. This, so, and we'll, we'll kind of get into that. God's existence must be established first. The, these, this is what these people are saying. The Bible is self-authenticating because it says it's the Word of God in various, er in various times. So therefore, it's self-authenticating. And again, and their problem is, since the Bible is literally the Word of God, it should not be subjected to any kind of criticism or, or any kind of uh, attempt to prove it to be the other God, uh, to be the Word of God. Nothing like rationality. Nothing, nothing like empirical evidence or anything like that. There is no higher authority. That's what they're saying, and therefore it's self-authenticated. and It should not be subjected to uh, these tests. So remember when I had told you about the old bumper sticker, or people had shirts like that. This too it says the Bible says it. Some say God says it. I believe it, that settles it. And remember what my problem with this is? Do y'all remember? It's the middle clause that not only is basically unnecessary, it also undermines the message they're trying to convey. And so we cross that out. The Bible says it, that settles it. Now, we have to prove though that the, the Bible is the authentic and only Word of God. Now, um, now that we have proven uh, God's existence, we're left, that's what I was talking about, you know, with the question basically, has this God manifested himself in some sort of written manner? We've already established there is a God. Right? Now we're asking the question, has this God revealed himself in pages, you know, in written form, through a variety of different ways. So, 
go back to the presuppos presuppositionalists, say that we are subjecting the Word of God to a lower, lower authority such as rationality or empiricism, that's what I was just saying, which compromises the validity of the faith. That's what they think. Okay? Okay. Now, the first problem of, of that argument, we, we are going to look at three, basically. The first problem with that is self-authentication is a logical fallacy of circular reason, or petitio principi. Remember? When basically the conclusion is in the premise. So, the, a, a perfect example. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible declares itself to be the Word of God. Therefore, it is the Word of God. This is a circular argument. The conclusion is already in the premise. The Bible is the Word of God, and then it ends with, therefore, it is the Word of God because it declares itself to be the Word of God. That is circular reasoning. Okay, and that's, that's a logical fallacy, that dis and any pagan in America will realize that. So, it's fallacious. It's nonsense. Second problem. The Bible is not only is not the only book which claims itself to be the Word of God. You've got the Quran. You've got the book. I mean, you've got a bunch. You've got the Book of Mormon. All the Mormons think that the Book of Mormon can be synchronized with the Bible. I, I don't. I don't see how you, they are opposed. You can't link them. Trust you know. In my opinion, uh, my humble opinion, we can talk about that some other time. But anyway, so there are other books uh, with this same claim as well. So we do, we must have some, some criteria to determine the validity of these claims. You know, some kind of test, some kind of way to determine. And we'll get into that later. Okay, today we are basically establishing kind of what are the problem, what problems we run into with Christians. Okay, this is much less to do with outside of the church than inside of the church. And then we'll go on to actually proving it in the weeks to come, okay? So today, though, we are establishing first the problems, and then we'll look... Anyway, you, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, okay, third problem. In the scriptures themselves, God, without subjecting himself to any test of rationality, for example, or empiricism, gives evidence and proof that he is the one speaking. Now, he does this... He authenticates the message by means of the miracle. Remember, when I was telling you, okay, let's go to the next one. But remember, when I was telling you that don't, you can't, you can't believe in somebody because they just do a miracle. If some guy comes and like is able to call fire from heaven without any message, which coheres with the rest of scripture, do not believe in him. Christ says, if you, if he told the Pharisees, if you can't believe in me, if you can't believe me for what I say, believe in me for my works, because his works attested to what he was saying. He did, he did not call fire from heaven to make a show. He didn't heal lame men and women for a show. He didn't heal the blind to impress everybody. He's doing these things, going back to the prophets, saying that this the Christ will be doing these things, okay? So it has to be according to also what is what the Word of God says and what God says, okay? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. So, a few examples. We will return to Moses at the burning bush. We've looked at this, this account, you know, uh, Moses has some questions, and basically he's asking, you know, you want me to go to the Hebrews and go to Pharaoh and basically say that God has sent me to deliver the people. How are they going to know 
that it's that I, that you actually that I'm speaking your words. How are they going to know that? And like I didn't just have some indigestion last night or something. How are they going to know? And he, and he tells Moses, put your hand into your cloak. He puts his hand into his cloak. He said, pull it out. He pulls it out. It's leprous. It's white as snow. His hand is. He says, now put your hand back in your cloak. Puts his hand back in your cloak. Says, take it out. He takes it out. It's pure. It's back. It's healed. And then he tells him, throw your staff on the ground. Throws his staff on the ground. It becomes a serpent. And he says, now pick it up. Now, just so you know, people, those people would be deathly afraid of serpents. And this go, there's a lot there because the staff is actually for protection and all this other stuff. And then he turns into a serpent. Anyway, we'll look at that, God willing, when we look at that actual account. But he's attesting with these signs and wonders. And when, when Moses goes to Egypt and, and he first throws the staff onto the ground and it, makes a, it comes into a certain... Pharaoh's magicians are able to do the same. And then, you know, Moses' serpent eats those up. And you'll see that even when the, the sea turns to blood, they kind of make this little thing. So, but their ability to kind of reflect the, the same miracle ends very quickly. You know, and Moses wins the day hands down. Okay, and, and we'll see that and you'll see that uh, in, in that account. So that's that one. Nicodemus knew, yeah, we ever talked about, okay, Nicodemus knew Christ had been sent by God because of the works he did. Remember, when he came to, to Jesus, he says, you know, we know that you, you were sent from God, for nobody would be able to do the things that you, you're doing unless God has sent him. Again, not because he was impressed with these signs, but because they attested to what God had said, because they, they are reflective of God's word, okay? Uh, even Christ, I already told you, uh, you know, even Christ told his accusers to believe, if not by his words, then by his works. Okay. So again, outside of, or inside, even inside the Bible, God is authenticating his word through another means other than just saying. That's the point. Okay. So in other words, there are other criteria by which to prove and validate these claims. Okay. So, and we know the authority of the apostles was attested by signs and wonders as we've been seeing, you know. Uh, some believe the miracle in the Bible proves the existence of God, which is fallacious. There is no miracle if there is no God. You must determine his existence prior to even describing anything as miraculous. There's, 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 a miracle is impossible. A supernatural event can't happen if there's no supernatural being. Right? So God's existence comes prior to recognizing anything as a miracle. Miracles are extremely rare occasions which validate the truth claims. Childbirth is not a miracle. It's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. But it happens, it's altogether common and natural. Miracles, that's why, that's, this is very important to recognize. There are wonderful things that happen in life. And there are amazing things that happen in life. It, it's at the, it, the most innocent level, it's just wrong. That is, these miracles are specific, very specific and completely uncommon. Okay, we will hopefully, yeah, so we're gonna, we're gonna return to this momentarily, after a little, okay? So these, this uh, um, critique, that criticism. One of the biggest points of controversy the church must deal with consider, so this is considering Hume and, and the like, these people who, who were basically criticizing the classical synthesis, right? Uh, and, well, 
is the whole idea of supernatural events recorded in, the, in Scripture. Hume, David Hume, denied miracles based on their not being able to be possible or scientifically proven. This is very important, and we'll get into this, but this is very important to those outside of the church, even some within the church. We looked at uh, um, Karl Barth and Emil Bruner. These people, are, these people are just accepting this and taking it into the church, and that's what we're going to look at. Naturalistic philosophy begins with the presupposition of the non-existence of God, and therefore there is no supernatural realm, and therefore there is no such thing as a miracle. That's what I've been saying. And that has taken, that, that is translated in science. Scientists, we'll get to that. But this is very important to understand, even at the outset, as we go along. So, this is what they believe. The Bible must be mythological because it declares miracles in it. That, that's their conclusion. So, for the naturalists, so far from miracles proving the truth claims of Christianity, the very fact that they claim miracles, re they reject it precisely for that reason. It's actually an irony that the miracles were meant to validate God's word, and now it's seen as invalidating God's word. It's really a sad irony. But they just dismiss it. This is a presupposition unproven, just like the non-existence of God, like we've been discussing. They spend very little to no time proving God doesn't exist. They just assume it, they just presuppose it, and therefore the Bible is myth mythological because it has miracles in it. That's one reason, they say. Anyway, uh, again, we'll return to that. Okay, now, again, we must... Uh, Agree the urgency of establishing the authority of Scripture. What I had told you, you know, two main tasks of the Christian apologetics is the existence of God and the validity and absolute authority of sacred Scripture. We, we have had 16 sessions up to this point proving God's existence. Now we're examining the second premise, namely whether the Bible truly is the Word of God. I already pretty much introduced that. We begin with the Bible's own claims of its authority, okay, and we'll, we'll look at some. The Bible says, and it does claim that it is the Word of God. Now, we're not going to, you know, retreat to these presuppositionalists, but since the Bible uh, declares itself to be the Word of God, that suddenly elevates the stakes, okay? Uh, now, is it, and we'll, we'll consider that here, in a second, here for a second, too. Uh, now, is it possible that should this claim be validated, in other words, if, 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 if it's proven that it's not the Word of God, let's just, again, just theoretically, if it's proven that it, that it is not the Word of God, does that mean all other claims can still remain valid? In my opinion, yes, they can be. For example, you don't have to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to recognize a man risen from the dead. Right? Just because you're just getting eyewitness testimony. Those, those people didn't have to be um, inspired. That's going to be a big word. Inspired by God. That's going to be a big word, and we'll see that. However, if all the supernatural claims are invalidated, that casts a huge shadow over the rest of the Bible's testimony. And we'll get into that, too. Returning to the point we made uh, regarding naturalistic philosophy, we are on a collision course, which is why we first established God's existence and thereby, thereby the possibility of supernatural events such as miracles. We have established this supernatural being. So now we at least recognize that the supernatural, such as miracles, are at least possible. We're not even saying that they happen. 
we are saying that they're possible at this point. This is a this is a growing crescendo that I promise you in two weeks has a glorious way of showing you the the absolute authority of the Bible as the Word of God and no other. But this is going to take a few weeks. Okay, so bear with me. Give me please give me patience. I beg you for, for your patience. Okay. Um, we have looked at passages of Scripture throughout the study without determining its validity. Remember last week, we were looking at the uh, uh, psychology of atheism in Romans 1, and we've been doing that without really proving yet the validity of God's Word, the, the authority of God's Word. Uh, that was really to say that there is a response to the psychologist. Basically, that's it, right? We're not even saying anything other than that at, that, at this point. Okay, so even though we hadn't proven the validity, it's still important to recognize that there's a response. Okay, and again, well, whatever. Uh, remember, we also made clear that the existence of God is not determined on a subjective basis, or, but on an objective basis. Remember, we had those two competing worldviews. We had uh, nihilism and we had theism. They're two, but we really had the psychology of atheists and the psychology of the believer. These are two opposing worldviews. The, in that scenario, fighting on the battlefield of subjective truth. Do you all understand the difference between objective and subjective truth? Objective truth is basically absolute truth. Subjective truth is basically being, depending on the person, depending on the circumstance, depending on all, a host of different things. Objective is absolute reality. Two plus two is four is an objective truth. That kind of thing. Um, Okay, now we're determining whether Paul was expressing his own philosophical perspective or whether it is indeed inspired by God and therefore binding on our lives. The question has to do with authority. And we're going to get... Okay, here we go. So, we've all uh, had to write term papers, right? I mean, in one way or another, and then we have to give sources. We have to cite sources in that paper. You're not only graded with... A, a, on the body of the work, but you're also graded on the sources you use, on the, the people that you are using as authorities to e either validate what you're saying or you know to show the invalidity of what you're saying, that kind of a thing. So if you use something like DC Comics, you're gonna get a terrible score, at least <laughs> you know, using sources, unless you're talking about Batman or something, you know, obviously, but you know, more often than not, DC Comics isn't going to get you anywhere. Uh, by citing authority, you give better credence to your work. Okay, this is important. This is just an example showing you uh, that, that deal. However, we also have seen disparate opinions, uh, different varying opinions, within a variety of disciplines like Einstein and Niels Bohr in physics. Two completely opposing uh, perspectives on physics. And we briefly looked at that, but they are completely... So uh, one person can, can cite Einstein on his theory of relativity. And then another person can uh, uh, use uh, Niels Bohr as a source to talk about the indeterminacy principle and like, you know, the, all of that. But anyway, so you can use those for two different reasons, but these are still authoritative people. Okay. But obviously, they both can't be right, just real quickly. One of, they can both be wrong but they both can't be right. Okay, in the final analysis, in this quest for truth, it would be certainly ideal if we can establish an authority, an absolute authority that is irrefutable, that is absolute. We, so it would, if we can find 
a, an absolute sovereign authority that makes everything, you know, kind of, it makes sense anyway. Let's put it that way for now. If we can determine God himself inspired this, the pages of Holy Writ, then all its content must be absolute. If the omniscient and infallible God who cannot lie is the ultimate author, there is no great, greater authority. And remember, I even mentioned authority has the word author in it. If God is writing this, that everything in it not only can be true, it must be true. Okay, which we're going to kind of look at too. If we were debating philosophy and you're citing Plato and I'm citing Aristotle, they had different, differing philosophies with di different things, especially epistemology, whatever, and forms, uh, ontology. Anyway, and God himself comes and tells us the answer. The debate is over. <laughs> the debate is over because he is the only impeccable source of truth. It should be over anyway. I mean, honestly, if we were having a debate, you know, you're talking about Plato, I'm talking about Aristotle, and then God himself comes in and says, it's Augustine. You're both wrong. It's Augustine. The debate is over. should be over. He's infallible. He's incapable of being wrong. He's the absolute sovereign over all things. So what he declares is absolutely so. Okay. If, if the Bible, if, the book, if this book comes from God, then all the conflicts we have over ethics and truth can be resolved instantaneously by this inerrant source of truth. Whether it's sexual morality, whether it's thievery, whether it's murder, whether it's capital punishment, this society has varying opinions with these things. If we can establish an absolute authority, if God himself says this, the debate is over. They will suppress it, okay? That, that's why we looked at that. But the debate as far as what the actual authority is, is over, okay? Even Christians have their own inclination, some well-intentioned, which, which ethically are at odds with Scripture. So sometimes you can be in a counseling situation. A minister can be counseling to somebody, and you know you 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 run into certain problems. And, and what you want to do is you want to help. You know you you see you see man, this thing is never going to work out. <laughs> man, there's no hope for these people. And so like because what they're wanting, what they're hoping for sometimes, is for you to just give them the, the, the green light, basically, to divorce, okay? But the minister, knowing his Bible, knows that's not an option, and he's got to be faithful to Scripture, okay? But this happens. There, there are these inclinations. I mean, again, we are fallen people, so even though we have this authority, we still want to stray from it and suppress it as well. That's why we talked about that. Okay. Ultimately, what is the authority and system? Well, that's what I talked about. Historic Christianity has long held the Bible to be God's word, and it's really only been in the last 200 years. By the way, the rest of the world did too. But it's only been in the last 200 years since the Enlightenment. That's what we've been talking about over and over and over again, that the Bible has been subjected to widespread criticism, not only outside the church, but from within. And we're going to look at that very briefly because we've looked at this in the past. Remember, the Enlightenment said that the, the God hypothesis is unnecessary to explain reality, right? And then everybody started with that position. Then Immanuel Kant, after Immanuel Kant, in his noumenal world, in his phenomenal world, and that chasm, that unbridgeable chasm, this has just been assumed 
There's no proof. There's no proof. If anything, there's proof to the contrary. But I'm not going to get into that. Later on, we are not going to talk archaeology. A lot of people will. And, and I, think that's a, I think that's a valid deal. I mean, that's a more evidentialist approach. approach. Uh, we are not going to do that. I'm going to show you how <coughs> different ways, particularly how Calvin did it. So anyway, but that's going to come two weeks from now. So it's really just since the last 200 years that the Bible has been criticized this way. And just real quickly, a little bit of a rabbit trail to the next. <laughs> One of Calvin's uh, recognitions is the, 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 the longevity of, of the Bible. It's been around for literally thousands and thousands of years. It had been around for thousands of years before Christ came. And, it's, and, it's, and every time the scribes copy that, it, there's been no book in history that has taken such care to copy it correctly. And we, we, that's just another thing that we probably won't talk about a lot. But kings in that day had to write them down. I mean, there were a lot of, the, you had scribes, you had all of these things. So that that wouldn't happen. Not, so no book has existed this long, and no book has been so carefully, you know, treated and made sure to be copied, you know, faithfully. So what he was saying is the, the validity the validity of scripture, just in that argument, he has got, he's got a bunch of others as well, just points to the validity of, of, uh, of the Bible. I think if he were now around and notice that, uh, and see all the criticism that's been going on in the last 200 years, he would even be more excited. Uh, what, okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that, because I do have something. Uh, okay, let, just, again, give me patience. Please, have patience. Uh, the last two centuries have seen a radical barrage of criticism against the Bible from within ecclesiastical and academic institutions. Seminaries, uh, some so-called Christian authors who, who criticize this. So again, Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, great Dutch theologian in the early 20th century, said that biblical criticism has disintegrated into biblical vandalism. And we'll get into that because what these people do is infuse a bunch of naturalistic philosophies to disprove miracles so that they are taking Hegelian philosophy. Remember, we looked at that. We'll get into that. But anyway, and, and so he's saying that biblical criticism has turned into biblical vandalism, that which should be a faithful consideration of what the book what the bible is saying in its authenticity has turned into pure vandalism which where they are forcing it to say something that it doesn't say or to take out something that it does say okay william fox foxwell albright uh who was who was to old testament archaeology what einstein was to physics very important uh expressed his utter disgust of the influence of hegelian philosophy Remember, that was, you know, you've got a synthesis, you've got an antithesis, you bring those together, form a thesis, or a synthesis, which forms a thesis, which spawns an antithesis, bring those together, it's a synthesis, which forms a thesis, it's just this thing that goes on and on and on again. And that's, and that's what led to socialism and communism, but anyway. So he's saying the influence of Hegelian philosophy and later existential categories, we haven't talked much about that, and we will at some point, there's no, there's not important in this 
uh, particular course or session. This has produced a mindset within the church. This is very important. This has produced a mindset within the church and biblical scholarship of radically unscientific theories about Scripture, ignoring the primary canons of historical investigation and empirical research, like the Jesus Seminar, which based all of its conclusion on one imaginative theory or another. I don't know if any of you have heard of the Jesus Seminar. It was big, really, in the 80s and the 90s. It came into a little bit of the early 2000s, but kind of since died away, more or less. But this assumption is still there. And what they were doing, so they, there are objective ways, that, that there, are, there are primary ways to historically investigate truth claims, books, history, um, and empirical research, scientific research, which we've discussed throughout this, uh, these sessions. Okay. Now, now we have this, so now we have this misty shadow hanging over the churches to the trustworthiness of the Bible. To the lady. I mean, it's not just in the scholarships. Christians are walking around today questioning the validity of Scripture. And are, can I really believe that miracles are true? All I hear is this nonsense and all this stuff. So it's cast a, a shadow over the, 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 the trust, the trustworthiness that the, the, the lady, the, the, the Christian, gives to the Bible. Does that make sense? I'm sure that makes sense. Okay. I must say, I must say, after spending years, <coughs> next to 20, years going through different criticisms, atheisms, all of these different criticisms, I not only wasn't convinced that they were right, I was more convinced than ever that the Bible is the Word of God. And we will get to that. But I'm just saying that, ju that all of these criticisms fall. They are utterly, at the very least, independable. Okay? Or undependable. I don't know what. Anyway, in other words, studying their arguments to convince me otherwise, I'm working that's what I, which I hope will be the same for you. We're going to see these criticisms again. Largely, that's what we're looking at today. But then, we, in the next two weeks, we will see the Absolute authentic, authenticity of the Bible and the authority. Okay. Again, this criticism of the Bible's inerrancy is not only from the skeptic, but also routine, routinely from the church itself. I say the church itself, just so you know, I say her, so I, and I like to call the church she and her because she's a body. So I only use that actually when we're talking about the true body of the church. This, when I say itself, that's talking about the institution because we've talked about the church is full of wheat and tares. And so the true church is when, is, and when I say she. Anyway, now let's examine some of the Bible's own claims. Okay, 1 Timothy 3, 10 through 15. So again, this is his first letter to Timothy, and he's right. he writes, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which we've been seeing, <laughs> what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He's writing this to Timothy, and again, we've been talking about that. Uh, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say all scripture, but we'll get into that. So, he's telling Timothy, 
This is very important, okay? Knowing from whom you have learned them, some people think that he's referring to himself or maybe his mother. He, he's not. He goes on to say, so knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have, made known, you, have, you have known the holy scriptures. So this is what he's learning and from whom is God. Because he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word, this is a terrible translation. This is a terrible translation. The word, the word I believe, is theonuso or something like that, but it's basically, it literally means God breathed. We'll get to that. Okay, so it's very important. What Paul is saying is that, you know, knowing from whom you have learned them, who's God. That's who Timothy has learned the Holy Scriptures from, because that's who he comes from, okay? So that's what he's saying. All Scripture, though, every... Now, this, the, the, the Greek word for Scripture is graphe. Now, when anybody would talk about the graphe, everybody knew that was talking about the Old Testament at that time, okay? Now, now that we're considering this for a second, let's quickly look at what Peter says in his second uh, epistle, Peter 3, 14 through 16. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent uh, to be found in him, by him in peace without spot and, and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And all, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them uh, of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which are untaught and unstable, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest. Of the scriptures what Peter is saying is now he's taking all of Paul's epistles and he's linking them to the graphe okay so it's not just the Old Testament it is at least also Paul's letters okay let's return okay that's where I wanted to oh there we go it's a uh, thing of Neustos, uh, which literally means God breathed okay um, so again what he's talking about is source what the source of this remember we were talking about the term papers okay so what paul is saying is you know no no you know learning uh, from whom you've learned them the source is god okay that's what he's doing this has to do with source which has at um ultimately has to do with authority does that make sense so he's he's saying god is the source this inspiration is literally god Read. Many people will disbelieve in the Bible because it's written by men, right? Because there's a lot there, you know, to that whole philosophy of to err is human, and that's true. I mean, humans are capable of mistakes, right? But it's a, it's a fallacy to just attribute that that the humanity as a trait errs if that is taken to its logical outworking, that is an error as well. It's a self-defeating argument, but we'll get into that. To human, people, we see people get hundreds on tests all the time. We see people doing things as perfectly as they can be done all the time. And if God truly breathes into a man, so, they, so the, the, the better translation of inspiration is actually expiration. When I breathe, you know, when I breathe in, that's an inhaling. I'm inhaling. When I exhale, I'm breathing. 
So when you speak, you breathe out. That's what God is doing. He's literally speaking his word. And then we'll get into all of that with, the, with how, is it, how is it that we can actually validate when a prophet says, Thus saith the Lord. How do we validate that? Well, again, one way was through the miracle. And we'll get into all that. But it's very important. What he is talking about is source and thereby authority. Does that make sense? That good? Okay. Any, any questions? No questions? All right. All right. So we're changing, changing tactics here with Augustine because he has... Uh, pretty long, pretty, uh, most of book 12 is about the scripture. And so we're going to uh, pretty much just go through here. Uh, so the first thing he says is, My heart is deeply stirred, O Lord, when in this poor life of mine the words of thy, thy holy scripture strike upon it. This is why the poverty of the human intellect, intellect expresses itself in an abundance of language. Inquiry is more loquacious than discovery. Uh, it's just easier, basically. Uh, demanding takes longer than obtaining, and the, uh, and the hand that knocks is more active than the hand that receives. But we have the promise, and who shall break, uh, and who shall break it? If God be for us, who can be against us? That is in Romans 8.31. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened. That's from Matthew 7, uh, verse 7 and 8. Uh, these are thy only promise. These are thy own promises, and who need fear to be deceived when truth promises? Again, what he's saying is, you know, my heart is deeply, deeply stirred, O Lord, when in this poor life of mine the words of thy Holy Spirit strike upon it. Sometimes it strikes in a way you don't like. <laughs> but again, if these are the words coming from God, I will say something quickly. Spoiler alert, because this is the way I kind of wanted to conclude, but it's very important. I, I, I've, 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 oh my gosh, we're going long. I've studied all these different philosophies, all these different... So when, when I read a book now, I've been wired to really criticize all kinds of writings. Looking at their epistemology, looking at their assumptions, looking at their worldview, looking at their formal or informal errors, looking at their factual errors... You know, all of that. So I, I developed this natural way of, of really critiquing things that I read. When I come to the Bible, I find it criticizing me. It's very different. It, 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 there's nothing like that. The Quran doesn't do that. The Book of Mormon doesn't do that. None of the Hindu uh, pages or any of their gods... Buddha certainly doesn't do that. Maybe we can get into that some other time. That should have been one of the choices, actually, other religions. But, so, I find the Bible criticizing me, that's basically what he's saying. Okay, When I come before your, the Holy Scriptures, no matter where I am, no matter how I am, how these are thy, prom, thy own promises, and who need fear to be deceived, to be deceived when truth promises God is truth. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is the truth. He's literally the word of God manifested in the flesh. Okay. Alright. Praise God. Any questions on that? Alright. Beautiful. Alright. Let's put this down. <laughs> 